Mr. Speaker. You're at the intersection of business and politics. This is the 14th and G podcast from Melman Castagnetti, Rosen and Thomas. Now, here's our host, Dean Hinkson. Thank you for setting your podcast out, 14th and G. I am your host, Dean Hinkson. As Russia ramps up the second phase of its offensive against Ukraine, a few things are clear, even to a lay observer like me. The determined resistance of the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people, I think, was unforeseen by Russia and, and much of the rest of the world, for that matter. It's, it's nothing less than heroic. Uh, and Russia's conduct of the war against a much smaller neighbor is nothing short of barbaric. There doesn't seem to be much of a front in this battle where hospitals, schools, and civilian evacuation routes appear to be regular targets of Russian artillery and bombs. While most of us see these scenes played out on the news and deplore them, some have taken a more personal hand in doing what they can to alleviate the suffering. And I am really pleased to be joined by one such American. Stephen Moore was chief of staff to Congressman Peter Roskam of Illinois. He's worked as a political strategist around the world. He's been in a few combat zones as well. And he is right now in the capital city of Kiev, running the Ukrainian Freedom Project and helping the people of Ukraine resist the invader. Stephen Moore, welcome to 14th and G. Thanks, man. It's good to get a glimpse of uh, back home and more familiar settings. Uh, you can so see a little bit. G. You can see a little bit of the DC sunlight creeping through here. It's it's probably about eight. I think eight hours ahead. Eight hours later, where you are. We are right now. It is ten forty four p.m. And uh, the curfew descends on Kiev. Yeah, there's a ten o'clock curfew, so I figured the ten thirty time for us to get together was probably the right time to do it. You knew you'd be somewhere and, so, somewhere stable. Stephen, what are you seeing? What 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 are you seeing in Ukraine? And what are you doing on the ground? So I'll start with what I'm seeing. And, you know, I drove into Kiev yesterday and I'm on my second trip here to Kiev. My first trip was three weeks ago. Normally I'm based out of a small city in southwestern Ukraine. But it's, you know, the, the Kiev three weeks ago was relatively safe, but there was still air raid sirens almost all day, every day. And you could hang your head out the window of your house and you could hear explosions in the distance. And, and the explosions were pretty far in the distance, but they were pretty large to, to get the kind of volume that you're getting 30 kilometers away, 40, 50 kilometers away. I don't know. So the last time I was here in Kiev, I went and visited some uh, hospitals at the front. And they were the hospitals that were taking uh, the wounded from uh, Bucha and Irpin. That was a that was an intense experience in, in this hospital that was just like, kind of like this normal, regional, semi-rural hospital, and they just weren't prepared for combat injuries. And so they were doing the best they could. It was really amazing to see the doctors at work. And and the, the kind of combat injuries that came in, two that I specifically remember, there was a guy with his knee ripped open, you know, all the way up. There's a woman with shrapnel wounds on her face. It was, um, it was something to see. Wow. How did you get involved? How did you get started with this, uh, with the Ukrainian Freedom Project? You're, you're really assisting the people of Ukraine that are there in this, in this war zone. 
That's true. So here's here's how this went. Is I, I worked in Ukraine about three years ago for a year, and I developed a strong network of friends here in Ukraine and uh, some really good friends, people that really looked after me when I was here. And the cool thing about Ukraine is they really love Americans here. And I'll give you one quick example. When I was here in 2018, uh, I was with my translator. We needed to get some documents notarized. So we had to go downtown to do this. She drives up to the gate of the office complex where we need to go. And the guy's like, no, you can't park here. You can't park here. And she rolls out the window and she says, uh, sir, we have Americans in the car. And he says, oh, you have Americans. Oh, come on, <laughs> come in, park in. You know, and I was like, wow, how'd that happen? What was that? So they really like Americans here, which is, which is super cool. And they really took care of me when I was here. So flash forward to the last few months, all my Ukrainian friends were like, this is not going to happen. There is not going to be a war. Putin's not going to invade. And, and they were kind of making fun of me for even asking. And then, of course, in the morning of, of that Putin invaded, I was calling all of them and I said, you know, are you okay? Are you okay? And nobody knows what to do when their city is turned into a war zone overnight. But I, this is my fifth war zone. And uh, I spent a lot of time in Iraq in 2003 and 2005 as a civilian. And so I had a sense for how things go. And so what I was able to do is I was able to start guiding my friends in and I would give them information about where to go and and where the safe routes were and and that sort of thing. And and I got a few people to safety from from just my living room. And then I just thought, you know what? I can do a lot better job of this if I'm in Ukraine. On, On day four of the war, I hopped on a plane to Bucharest and then I drove into Ukraine. And this is while Kiev is still under fire. That was the Kiev was the main. Oh yeah, people are, at that Oh point. yeah, wow. And people are, are were rushing out of Kiev. And so I got an apartment which we used as a safe house. Ultimately, we got about fifty people to safety through that safe house. It, it's a, it can sleep twenty nine people at once. We found out it's a four bedroom place. So I got these. I uh, got got about fifty people to safety through those means and then through getting routing through other safe houses, I was able to get about another 60 people to safety. So uh, that was a really good feeling. You know, about three weeks into it, I kind of said, well, all my friends who want to be in a safer part of Ukraine are in a safer part of Ukraine or, or they've gone over the border. So at that point, I could have declared victory and said, you know, all right, I'm going home. I, I really saw the needs that were here. So I decided to stay a little bit longer. And you're working on uh, getting supplies across the border. It looks like a lot of your work, uh, you, you get supplies over from Romania and into Ukraine. What kind of things can you provide? What kind of things are the people of Ukraine in need of right now? There's a lot of things they need. You know, I had I have about four doctors in my network and they kept calling me and saying, can you help us get medical supplies? Can you help us get medical supplies? And, you know, my, my thought was that there's other organizations, very large organizations that should be doing this. And I'm not sure, you know, and I actually had to kind of double check. Are you sure that no one else is doing this for you? The Red Cross. (laughs) And as one, yes, yes. I think the Red Cross is doing something in country, but they weren't helping people I know. And so I did, I just went and got some, basically we've, we've done three trips to Romania where we bought out pharmacies. We get wow. lists from the hospitals. We go to Romania. We just go to pharmacies and get them. And, uh, and then we come back into Ukraine and, and bring them the medical supplies they need. And, uh, and we, we've got a sprinter van. So that's the kind of capacity we have. It's done pretty well. We helped out. You know, I mentioned earlier that I went to those hospitals uh, outside of Bucha in Irpin. And I saw the devastation there. 
and the people, the wounds that were coming in. So we got meds to that hospital and we got supplies to that hospital and uh, we helped. And so that's, again, that's, you know, that's something tangible that we can see that, that people uh, benefit from, from our work. Another thing is there's, there's this guy, Bogdan Yurov, and Bogdan became a bit of a celebrity because CNN did a story on him in Kharkiv. Bogdan has a bar. Bogdan turned the basement of his bar into a shelter for people in Kharkiv to stay safe. And then Kharkiv started running out of food. And Bogdan called us and said, uh, uh, hey, you know, I heard about you guys. Can you help me get some food? And so we today brought our second shipment of 1.5 tons of food to Bogdan and Kharkiv. And he does great stuff with it. He's Feed, feeds the people he's taken care of. And then he goes out and feeds the people and he delivers it to their door and they make great food for these people. And it's, it's really impressive work. But again, aren't there larger organizations that should be doing this? We love Bogdan and we want to help them. Right. But why does he call us? What I think in the big picture you see here in Ukraine, a very slow reaction by big governments and big NGOs. I think you have organizations that are no longer run by humanitarian experts, but maybe run by lawyers. I don't know. I really can't speak to it. But is there some tiptoeing there around the around the Russians, around the Chinese, around international powers that may not want to see them operate in Ukraine? Yeah, hard to say. Yeah, I know this that the Red Cross. You know, I've, I've seen their countries, their trucks in country, and so I know they're here doing something. And again. None of the people that I know have seen them. They really lost credibility here in Ukraine when the president of the International Committee, the Red Cross, out of Geneva, went to Moscow and negotiated with the foreign minister office, hoping an office in Russia for Ukrainians fleeing the Russian army. Wow. The Red Cross has been tone deaf. And again, they, I've, I've not, I'm, I'm in Kiev now. Um, I spent today driving all around Southern and, Southern and Central Kiev. None of the big NGOs that you might expect, you know, there's not like no, you know, the UN, there's no boxes from USAID. So I'm sure these big organizations are doing something. I can't verify anything they're doing by personal experience in, in Ukraine or the experiences of people I talk to. Stephen, you talk about the the spirit of the Ukrainian people. I mean, it's, uh, I guess, this sort of this level of resistance, uh, at least on paper, the Russian military machine should be uh, one of the most fearsome in the world. But maybe the resistance shouldn't be as surprising. I was there. I've, I've made one trip there on a Codel oh, yeah. uh, in 2016 when, uh, when my boss, uh, Senator Dan Coates, uh, went over with the Intel Committee beautiful city. I remember getting an eyewitness recounting of, of the revolution in the Maidan square that led to the, the ouster of President Yanukovych. That was in uh, 2014. Stalin in the Soviet era in the early 30s uh, starved over 4 million people in Ukraine in intentional famine, that they're being invaded in a, in a way they never thought would happen. My Ukrainian friends can take you through a long list of, of, of over centuries of how uh, the Russians have done terrible things to the, the Ukrainians. And you mentioned Holodomor, the, uh, you know, which is literally translated punishment by starvation. Yeah. And, um, and just, you know, millions of people died, but you don't hear about that. And I think that while it's really easy to go into, into Europe and get a, a visceral experience of the Holocaust, um, there's no place, there's no physical place where you can go and, and see 
the horrors of communism and, and the things like Holodomor that happened. But I will tell you this, the Ukrainian people are amazing. And listen, I, I was in Romania getting supplies for several days and I got back into Ukraine and it's like the minute I crossed the border, I could just feel the energy, you know? And when you talk to people, you know, everyone's just like ready to fight and everybody is like doing everything they can. So these people are unified and they're working hard and it's really exciting to be a part of that. And, and then even as you go farther north, as I'm in Kyiv right now, and Kyiv is, you know, the capital city and the kind of the hotbed of everything that's going on. And right. just the energy and, uh, and, and the, the unity, it's an exciting thing to be a part of. And, you know, and, and we're doing a small part the best we can. And I'm just proud to be able to take place at this moment in history with these people who are just so amazing. I'm proud of the work you're doing. It's it's really uh, it's it's amazing to run into the teeth of of a conflict like this is 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 real personal and, and physical bravery. This war's taken, I think, sort of a second phase here in terms of the offensive. The Russians are now in the eastern part of the country, the Donbass region, really ramping up uh, their offensive. I believe the the new Russian general in charge of their effort was the same one that oversaw the Russian intervention in the Syrian civil war. And maybe they're pursuing something of a similar strategy where they're just willing to to, to level complete destruction, to rule over the ashes of, of what's left behind. Is is that what you're seeing there? They certainly they certainly have done really terrible things so far. And I'll tell you, I drove through territory that is formerly occupied by Russians up until like you know, a week or two ago um, on the way to Kiev this time. And just, uh, you know, just blown up buildings, bombed out buildings, several tanks that had been just sort of the weirdest smoking mess, which is fun to see Russian tanks that <laughs> you know, had, been, had been blown up and burned. Yeah, the Russian occupied areas, terrible things have happened to people. And, you know, you wonder why you, you wonder why the Russians are like this. I refer back to my something my former boss told me, Peter Roskam, and it was really interesting. He was had the opportunity to be on a Kodel where he was uh, with Russian parliamentarians, members of the Duma in Russia. And so he asked them, he's like, well, there's a lot of support in Ukraine in the United States. And, you know, when, why, why are you going after it? There's not that, there's not that much benefit to Russia. And, you know, he kind of waited, he stopped talking. And the, the member of the Duma said, Congressman, you know, if we go into Ukraine, we will have the satisfaction of knowing they're not more successful than we are. Wow. So, and, and there's been graffiti on, uh, you know, on places that, that they've bombed out that says, you know, who gave you permission to live well? And, you know, so there's this weird kind of sibling rivalry or something, yeah. kind of like this weird, <laughs> yeah, super weird on the part of the Russians. All the Ukrainians want is to be left alone. Yeah. Dean, I've, I've done a lot of public opinion research in my life. So let me, you know, kind of give you the, the, the public opinion view of this. Yeah. If you look at historical polling in Ukraine in 2012, there's, there's this typical question they ask, which is sort of gauge Western versus Eastern sentiment. Would you rather be a member of the European Union or a member of the Russian's customs union? Would you rather be affiliated with Russia or affiliated with the West? Right. And if you were to take that poll and, and look at the polls from like 2012, You'd have had a plurality of people that wanted to affiliate with the Russians, about 45%. About 35% would say the EU and the rest would say they don't know. And then after 2014 in Donbass, the polling shifted and, and the Russians got about 15% 
you know, only 15% of Ukrainians at that point wanted to be affiliated with the Russians. If you look at that, what Putin did by invading Donbass in 2014 was he limited his options for political influence in Ukraine. So because no one, he didn't have any sway anymore politically. At that point, all his options for influencing Ukraine became kinetic. And so, you know, because he was not going to win any political fights in Ukraine because the Donbass war made Putin and Russia very unpopular in Ukraine. And that's how we got here. This is so, you know, he's it was actually probably a foolish move on his part because he was doing a decent job of stirring the Russian passions in people. And then just went to went totally downhill. So begs the question: What's what? What's the end game for Putin now that this sort of swift roll through Kiev seemed like what he wanted to do was, you know, quickly decapitate the government, uh, maybe try to install another puppet regime. That that's not an option for him. It doesn't seem anymore. And then what's yeah. the, what's what's the end game for Zelensky? Uh, you know, is he is is there some piece of territory, the Donbass, that region in eastern Ukraine that he might give up in a suit for peace. Zelensky floated that idea a couple of weeks ago. I did not speak to one Ukrainian who thought it was a good idea. Basically, their, wow. you know, our, their, our country is being attacked. We're mobilized. We're winning. We want all our territory back now. So nobody is tired of this. Nobody is losing motivation. Nobody wants to give up one inch of Ukraine. In fact, I saw some graffiti on a bridge on the way uh, over here yesterday, a big map, cartoon map of Ukraine that included part of Russia on the eastern side. And so uh, (laughs) people here would just as soon march to Moscow. Yeah. Wow. It's fascinating. Well, at least a part of that, Stephen, uh, is the work that that you and others like you are doing to uh, support the people of Ukraine. Uh, in the resistance and in the war effort. I want to help the Ukrainian Freedom Project. Uh, where do I go to do it? Yeah, so we have a webpage, ukrainefreedomproject.org. So that's Ukraine, like the country, freedom, like a very important word we all love, and project.org. You can go there. Is it if you go there, I will give it to give the money and the, and, and the, the stuff we buy from the money with money to people I know and trust who are going to do things that are good for Ukraine with it. Everybody I work with is part of my larger network. Uh, they're either a friend of mine or they're a friend of a friend. They're, they're people I know and trust. What we're doing right now is we shifted kind of from helping people flee the, the violence because no one seems to want to flee anymore to helping people survive inside Ukraine. Right. And that means and we're kind of focused on food, meds, things to keep people safe on the battlefield, body armor, combat medical kits, tourniquets, um, Israeli bandages, that sort of thing. Everybody in Ukraine is at risk with the Russians. And there's at least 300,000 units of body armor needed. So we're trying to help provide some small part of that. We're working with an NGO out of Lviv. That is manufacturing high quality body armor for $160 a piece. For $160, you can save someone's life in Ukraine. Well, it's it's a real effort. It's a targeted effort. Uh, it's a trusted effort. I encourage uh, everyone listening to go to ukrainefreedomproject.org and make a donation. I mean, we're talking about uh, we're talking about a budget here in the yeah. tens of thousands of dollars. And Stephen, I know you've put your own money into this. God bless yeah. you. God bless the work you're doing. And uh, stay safe, my friend. 
Uh, thank you for Thanks joining. Thanks a lot. Me. Hey, really good to talk to you, man. Uh, usually all my conversations take place in broken Ukrainian. So yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm going to leave you with Duja Jakuyu, which Duja is thank you very much in Ukrainian. Hardnohonya, which is have a good day. And, and your, your, any Ukrainians that are going to be listening to this will be laughing at my Ukrainian. <laughs> so, uh, Stephen Moore, thanks so much, man. See you, Dean. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to today's podcast, brought to you by the lobbying firm of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. For more, just type 14th and G podcast into your favorite search engine or look for 14th and G wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker.